Father, what a beautiful day, and I thank you for this time each year to remember that most important moment on the cross. We thank you, Father, for the chance to celebrate it in the way we do as believers who have received the benefits of Christ's work and now rest in that work. Thank you, Father, for Oak Hill, for the chance on this Sunday to gather with men and women united by the Spirit into one body and to hear from you through your word and to celebrate what we know was your resurrection and triumph over death. We praise you for that work. We thank you for the grace that allows us to share in it. And we ask, Father, that what we learn today we could proclaim throughout our years as we await your return. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, if you can't tell already, today is Easter. It's easy enough to notice just because of all the pretty dresses and the fact that I'm wearing a tie. In fact, I grew up Catholic, and as a Catholic, you know, there's two days of the year you go to church. Christmas and Easter, right, at a minimum. And since I'm now a believer, we don't worry about that anymore, but I still follow the tradition of simply wearing a tie two days a year. It's kind of my way of honoring my, my family history. But today's Easter, it's the day we remember the, and celebrate, for that matter, the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, normally, you know, I'm teaching in this room on Sundays through books of the Bible, verse by verse. We've been in the book of Genesis since about the time of Adam. And, but we are nearing the end, by the way. And I thought it best to suspend that for the day so we could talk more about Easter in general. And as it turned out, when I was sitting in my home office yesterday preparing for this sermon, I had an interesting experience. And that experience actually changed the topic for my teaching this morning. Saturday mornings is usually the time I set aside to do my prep for Sunday morning. It's just that nice, early, quiet part of the weekend, at least in my house it is. Everyone else is still asleep. And in this case, I'm sitting in my office. I have a window that looks out to the front of my yard. And as I'm sitting there preparing, I notice two women begin to walk down my walkway toward my front door. They were wearing dresses, very much like Sunday best. They were carrying books. And, of course, they were Jehovah's Witnesses. And they were coming to have a conversation about Christ. And I greeted them, and I smiled, and I settled in for a nice conversation. I always work very hard whenever you get these religious visitors to hold them in the conversation. Can you think of any other time when an unbeliever will come to you asking to have a conversation about Christ? Folks, if we can't turn that opportunity into a presentation of the gospel, we're hopeless. And so my view is, if these people have made the effort to come to me, to talk to me about Christ while I'm sitting at my desk preparing a message about Christ, it's a good time for a conversation. So the two women came, I greeted them, and they said they were here to talk about Jesus' resurrection on the occasion of the Easter weekend. Now, in case you don't know much about the teachings of the Jehovah's Witnesses, let me, let me just quickly summarize them for you. They don't believe Jesus was God. They see him merely as a messenger sent from God. In fact, they don't believe in the Trinity at all. They only believe in God the Father, who they call Jehovah, hence the name Jehovah's Witnesses. Also, like the Catholic Church, and speaking as a former Catholic, I know this, they teach that good works are required, along with faith in some sense, in order to be saved, in order to go to heaven. They also teach that the kind of resurrection that a person might experience after they die will differ depending on how good the life was of that person when they lived on earth. Back to good works again. 
So works and good living are essential in their minds to achieving the right outcome in terms of resurrection, getting to the right place after you die. And I want you to see just how strongly they hold to this view. They distort the Bible's teaching concerning the thief on the cross. They say that the thief who confessed Christ and who Christ said would be in paradise with him on that day was not actually there. That, in fact, he could not have been there because his life had too much sin to merit resurrection into heaven. This is the pamphlet they gave me, and I found this story in. I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs. They said, did Jesus promise the evildoer, that's how they call the thief, the evildoer life in heaven? And this is how they answer it. They said, first, let us consider whether that evildoer met the qualifications for heavenly life. Humans with heavenly prospects must be baptized in water and with Holy Spirit and are thus spirit begotten disciples of Jesus. Another requirement is that they conform to God's moral standards and manifest such qualities as honesty, integrity, compassion. They must also remain loyal to God and Christ till the end of their earthly course. Only by meeting those requirements can they show themselves worthy of being resurrected and qualified for the weighty responsibility awaiting them in heaven. In contrast, the evildoer alongside Jesus lived as a criminal and died as a criminal True, he showed a respectful attitude when he said to Jesus, remember me when you get into his kingdom. But nevertheless, he had not been baptized. He was not spirit begotten disciple of Jesus, nor had he built a record of upright conduct and faithful endurance. Does it seem reasonable that Jesus would promise him heavenly kingship alongside his faithful followers who had proved their integrity? And then to make their point, finally, they use an illustration. They said, if a man asked you forgiveness for stealing your money, you might decide not to press charges, but would you trust him to run your business or to take care of your family? You would reserve such responsibilities only for those in whom you had the utmost confidence. Well, likewise, those who are given the hope of life in heaven must provide a solid basis for confidence that they will uphold God's righteous standards when they rule over mankind. The evildoer, though apparently sincere in his last minute plea, provided no such basis. You know, it just occurs to me, I'm probably the only pastor reading from the Jehovah's Witnesses on Easter Sunday from the pulpit. Please don't let that influence your opinion of me too much. So you see the problem, don't you? They say the thief was promised a kind of resurrection, a lesser resurrection in a future earthly kingdom. That's how they explain Jesus's response to the man. But the Bible records that Jesus said the thief would be in paradise today, that day, with Jesus, that day. That's what the Bible actually says. In summary, the Jehovah's Witnesses have a teaching that mixes a theology of good works with a completely distorted view of what the Bible teaches on resurrection and heaven. And then they walk door to door looking for people who would accept that thinking. Now, they claim to follow the Bible, but because they're not Christian. They lack the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, without the Spirit, they can't understand spiritual truths found in Scripture. They're just like the Pharisees, in a sense. They claim to know what the Bible says. Yet, what they've really truly done is taken man-made ideas and they project them onto Scripture, seeing what they prefer to see, rather than what's actually written. As Paul says in Galatians, they have believed a false gospel, which is no gospel at all. 
So in light of their wrong view of Jesus and their wrong view of the resurrection, I asked them some questions. I asked them, first of all, what is the meaning of Easter then? And what is the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection? I mean, after all, if Jesus is not God in the flesh, which is what they say, then why was his death and resurrection notable or meaningful in the first place? Well, think about it. Other men have been brought back to life in the Bible. You have Elijah raising a widow's son in 1 Kings 17. You have Jesus himself raising a widow's son in Luke 7. You have the apostles raising men. Paul raised the man who fell out of the window in Acts chapter 20. So if Jesus is simply just another man, another messenger sent from God, which is what they would claim, then why are we celebrating his death and resurrection? He's just one of several that have gone through that process, or so it would seem. And then secondly, I asked, if Jesus' death and resurrection doesn't assure his followers of heaven, well, then what's the benefit of his dying? If the thief on the cross, for example could not have shared in Christ's inheritance in heaven, according to Jesus' own words, then what assurance do I have that I will merit heaven? I haven't heard Jesus tell me I'll be in paradise. How is the story of Easter good news for any of us if it doesn't address our sin and our desire to avoid God's wrath? Well, when you boil it all down, our conversation between me and these two women centered on the meaning of Easter. That's really what we were talking about. What does Easter mean? As we said in the note that went out this week, it's not about the bunny. There's something deeper at this, right? Knowing what Easter means is essential. There's a story of three Texas college students. No, don't get started yet. Who were on spring break. And unfortunately, as will happen at times, they were in a car accident celebrating their spring break. And they all died in this accident and found themselves standing at the pearly gates of heaven. Now, as all good heaven stories go... They're met at the gates by Peter. And Peter has to make sure they're worthy of entering into heaven. So he applies a test, a simple test. He asks each man a simple question. He says to the first one who happened to be a graduate of the University of Texas, what is Easter? The question that I asked these two women. And the UT grad replies, oh, that's easy. It's the holiday in November when everyone gets together, eats turkey and is thankful. St. Peter shakes his head. Wrong. He turns to the Texas Aggie and asks the Texas Aggie, what is Easter? And the Aggie replies, well, Easter is that holiday in December when we put up a nice tree, exchange presents, and celebrate the birth of Jesus. St. Peter looks at the Aggie, shakes his head in disgust, tells him, no, no, you're wrong too. And then he peers over his glasses at that third student. Now, the third student was from Baylor University. A proper Texas Christian college. So Peter asks, do you have any idea what Easter is about, son? And of course, Peter had a Texas accent. And the Baylor grad smiles confidently, looks Peter straight in the eye, and he says, I know what Easter is. Easter is that Christian holiday that coincides with the Jewish celebration of Passover. Jesus and his disciples were eating at the Last Supper, and Jesus was later betrayed and turned over to the Romans by one of his disciples. The Romans took him to be crucified. And he was stabbed in the side, made to wear a crown of thorns, and was hung on a cross with nails through his hands. Later he was buried in a nearby cave and was sealed off by a large boulder. Well, Peter smiles broadly, pleased with the sun. Finally, somebody knew what Easter was about. But the Baylor graduate wasn't finished. He continued, 
Every year, the boulders move aside so that Jesus can come out. And if he sees his shadow, there'll be six more weeks of winter. (laughs) So when it comes to Easter, it's not enough that you get some of the story or even most of the story right. You have to have the whole story or you have nothing. So what about those two questions that I raised for my Jehovah's Witnesses visitors? Why is Jesus' death and resurrection so important and so central to the gospel? And what does that fact of his resurrection mean for us today? Simple questions, ones that I hope we can all answer better than those three college students, certainly, but essential. Because those questions really lie at the heart of what is orthodox Christianity. Do you know those two visitors? They thought they were Christian. Of course they did. And I can call myself a Boy Scout. But it doesn't make me one. They didn't understand the essence of the gospel. And as a result, they were so close and yet so far. So why was Jesus' death and resurrection important? Well, as I asked this question of the older lady, I asked why when Jesus died, God in the form of man on that cross, why was that so important then? She looked at me as I asked that question, and she got this, I'll never forget this, she got this puzzled, almost pained look and expression on her face, and she said to me, you don't really think God died, do you? You don't think God would go to hell, do you? I mean, she couldn't bring herself to accept that God, the Creator, could ever suffer a death much less one on a cross, much less then go experience the penalty of sin, which is separation from God, away from the presence of God in hell. It didn't make any sense to her that God would do that. And I have to admit, by the way, the idea is striking. It's even incomprehensible when you really stop and you think about it. Why would the Creator ever do such a thing? Why would He ever accept such a thing? And much less, why would He do it for the sake of you and I, for sinners? The Jehovah's Witnesses have tried to reconcile that difficulty simply by demoting Jesus from God to man. Well, that seems to solve the problem then for them, doesn't it? He was simply a messenger. He's just a prophet. He's a man chosen to represent God. In fact, I looked further in the literature, and I'll spare you from any more reading of it, but the literature draws a comparison between Adam who Luke calls in his gospel the Son of God when he recounts the genealogy of man. When he gets to Adam in his genealogy, he calls Adam the Son of God. They make a comparison between that and Jesus, who John 3.16 calls the only begotten Son of God. And so they use that comparison to support the claim that both Adam and Jesus were created sons of God. Men, in other words, using that term. And they go a little step further and they say, but Jesus was just created a little better than Adam. You know, where Adam made a big mistake, Jesus made no mistake. It was just a little better creation. That's their theology. It's in their pamphlet. That's not what the Bible says. That's a good example of speculation supported with improper use of Scripture. Throughout history, This process of speculation and improper use of Scripture has led many away from the truth and into false gospels. The Jehovah's Witnesses are just the latest example of that. So did God really come in the form of man? Let's settle that here. I mean, it's a question that's on the table. Let's address it. What does the Bible say? Well, first, the Bible teaches Jesus was not created like Adam. 
But instead, the Bible says he was in existence even from the beginning of creation. Before anything was created, he existed. And most famously, we find that in John's gospel, John 1, 1 through 1, 3. In the beginning was the word, which is John's name for Jesus. And the word was with God. And listen, the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. John says plainly, Jesus is God. He was in the beginning. And John goes a step further and says everything that's ever been created, Jesus created. He is the creator within the Godhead. Paul tells us what happened next in the story of Jesus. In Philippians 2, 5, Paul says this. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made into the likeness of man, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul says that even though Jesus was equal with the Father as God, nonetheless, he was willing to step down from his position in the eternal realm, in the heavenly realm, to take, Paul says, the likeness or the form of man. He came in the likeness of man. Now, the Greek word for likeness is homoima, which means the form of or appearance of something. He is not like you and I. We are not saying Jesus was not man, but we are saying he was more than man. He shared the same physical body we have. He had the same feelings and emotions that men have, for that is how men are. But he did not have the sin that you and I have. The Bible says he came conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, so that his origins are heavenly. His origins are not earthly in the same way you and I were born of a father and a mother. And that difference makes all the difference. It meant he was sinless. He had no sin. And after living a perfect sinless life, Paul says Jesus put himself on a cross and suffered a death voluntarily, though he had no sin of his own and therefore had no reason to die. So if Jesus was merely a superhuman, like the Jehovah's Witnesses would say, someone created by the Father, then Paul and John are either liars or fools. And if they are wrong about Jesus' identity, why do we care what they would say about anything else about him? In other words, why did they come to my door carrying a Bible? If in the Bible, two of the primary witnesses of the New Testament are saying wrong things about Jesus, pitch the whole thing out. That's the only logical response. But yet they brought it. So Easter, friends, is the story of God taking the form of man so that he could suffer death and enter hell. But the Jehovah's Witnesses, they couldn't understand why God would ever do such a thing. But I think this woman had trouble with the concept of God coming and dying for us because she could not see a reason why that was necessary. Everyone can understand why Jesus would come to earth to teach 
And everyone can understand that Jesus brought useful moral principles to bear in his life and demonstrated godly living. Everyone agrees with that. It gets you nowhere to ask someone if Jesus was a good teacher or a good moral example. Everyone agrees with that, and it goes nowhere beyond that. The question is, why did he have to die? Why did his death matter? Paul says the cross, the place of his death, is foolishness to the world that's perishing and a stumbling block to the Jewish people specifically. Because everyone can accept the way Jesus' story began, but it's that ending. It's the way it ended that's always the sticking point. Why do I care that he died? Well, once again, Scripture gives us the answer. First Peter, in Peter's first letter, First Peter 3.18, we read this. For Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Paul also says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, speaking about God the Father, he says, He made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Finally, Paul in Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Paul says plainly, why did Christ die? For our sins. Jesus made a payment that the Father requires for sin. Do you remember back in the garden, When God gave Adam the rules for living in the garden, he says, you cannot eat of the fruit of this tree, for if you do, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. By God's own word, the penalty for disobeying God is death. That's where it comes from. Because God said, you die if you eat. It's a rule, and once God's word is spoken, it cannot change. And since that day, all men have sinned, and therefore, all men, according to Scripture, are owed the penalty that God's word proclaimed, death. And that death is not only one of body, but of one of spirit as well. And we all get to experience at least the first one, according to Scripture, barring the rapture. We all see our body die. But the important question of Scripture is whether you're also going to suffer the second death, Scripture calls it, the one in which your spirit enters into eternal torment rather than into the presence of God in heaven. It's not pleasant. It's not enjoyable to hear someone mention the fact that God has prepared eternal torment for those who are opposed to him in sin. But I would be wrong, just like those Jehovah's Witnesses were, if I glossed over it or ignored it or failed to mention it. I'm not doing you or anyone else a favor if I avoid telling you the truth. The Bible teaches Jesus took that penalty of death on our behalf when he died on the cross. He died a physical death that the curse of God required. He went into the depths of the earth proclaiming the truth to those now in prison, Peter tells us, and he took our place in all respects when he died for our sins. And Paul says that he received the curse that we deserve when he did that. Now, why was he able to do that? The scripture says because he was qualified in his sinlessness. You know, if he had not been sinless, then when he died, he'd just be paying the penalty for his own mistakes. Because he had no sin of his own, Paul says he became our sin when he hung on the cross. It's like when you take a test. 
You all remember that, right? In school, when that big day came for the exam, and you're nervous because you want to do well, and you're in the room with all the others in the room taking the test, heads down, looking at your paper, waiting for the clock to tick by and the test to be collected. Now, we could say that the test of our life, from God's point of view, is whether we live according to his standards or not. And by that standard, do you know what our score is on this test of life, according to the Bible? It's a big fat zero. Zero. Scripture says that with even one sin in our life, we have disqualified ourselves for entry into heaven. It's not on some scale. It's not on the basis of some addition and subtraction nonsense. If you want to know what's true, the Bible says with even one sin, God considers us guilty of all sin. And as a result, there is no recovery from that. It's like when you take a test and you get one answer wrong. I don't care how many other right answers you give for other questions. That one that's wrong stays wrong, doesn't it? And so it is with God. I can have a million things I do right, but if I sin even one time, according to God's standard, which is a test of perfection, I score zero. I score zero. Now, meanwhile, in that classroom, sitting next to me, as it turns out, is Jesus. And he's taken exactly the same test. He came as a man, lived as a human being, so that he could perform the test of life and in the performance do perfectly. So Jesus has taken the same test. Guess what his score is? 100. 100%. Never made a mistake, according to Scripture. Now, on the day of our judgment, God, our teacher in this example, comes down the rows collecting our tests. And as he grades them, he's going to hand out the appropriate outcome, the appropriate result. God is just, perfectly just. He doesn't grade on the curve. His grade is perfection or zero. Pick one. And as he comes to pick up my test, lo and behold, Jesus, in a flash, takes his test answers and mine, and he switches them. And according to Scripture, though he merited no death, and I merited hell, he took the death in hell, and he assigned to me his righteousness, his perfection was assigned to me according to Scripture. And as the test is graded, God the Father looks upon me, and says, well done, my faithful servant. Enter into my rest. Now, am I there because I did well? No. I'm there because Jesus did well. How does Jesus turn to the thief on the cross and say, today you will be with me in paradise, when the man had a life of sin? Because Jesus was hanging next to him, taking that penalty, even as he spoke those words. Peter says Jesus died once for all. What he means is Jesus can swap test scores, not just with one person, but with everyone, anyone. His death was unique. You know, those men I mentioned earlier who were seen as being resurrected in the scripture. What's different about them than Jesus? Well, the Bible says after each of them were resurrected, guess what? They had to die again. Some deal they got. They still had to see their earthly body go to the grave, never to recover. Jesus, on the other hand, Scripture says when he was resurrected, he was brought up in a glorious, eternal form, which will never die again. And it was then taken into heaven, where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, interceding, representing the believers to the Father. He never died again. And he makes a promise to those who will trust in him. 
that we will experience exactly that same kind of resurrection. We will not have the resurrection that Lazarus had. We will not have the resurrection that the widow's son had. We will have the resurrection that Jesus had. A new, incorruptible, permanent life that will never suffer death again. Why? Because we merited it? No. Because Jesus was perfect. And he met the test. You know, the ladies who visited my door, they could not explain the significance of his death and resurrection because they could not connect it with their future. They were too busy connecting their future with their own good works, their own wages. The wages of that sinner's life will be death, according to Scripture. Paul says this in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you see the central issue of the death and resurrection of Christ? You can believe Jesus existed. You can believe that Jesus died. But can you accept that he rose from the dead on this Easter day 2,000 years ago and did so expressly to prove to you and I that he was who he said he was, the creator the one who has power over life and death. And by that power, he has the capacity to grant you and I that same outcome should he desire to show us mercy. And the means by which he does so is our willingness to confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord. Isn't this ironic? Men and women like those Jehovah's Witnesses and others will spend their whole lives working to obtain something you cannot earn, but will never Make a simple confession of faith which provides for everything they're working so hard for. You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses were right about one thing, though. That thief on the cross, he was not good enough to enter heaven. Absolutely he wasn't. His life was nothing but a legacy of sin. Instead, Jesus was good enough that he could enter heaven. So what answer do you offer the lady when she comes to your door? Or anyone, for that matter. When they ask you about the death of Jesus and why was that needed and how come you care about a man's death on a cross? Well, let's give them the answer the Bible gives in Romans, Romans 5, 6 through 9. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we will be saved from the wrath of God through him. So why did Jesus come and die on the cross? That one word answer is love. The love of God demonstrated to men that we might know he is merciful and willing to forgive us. But he does so on the basis of a very specific act and a very specific confession. Believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. That's the meaning of Easter. It's not a celebration of his death or even of his resurrection. It's a celebration of the debt being paid for our sake. It's the moment when God took my place. I wish I could tell you that that encounter with the women ended on a positive note. I will tell you I held them as long as I possibly could. I asked them if I could share some literature with them. They said no. I asked them if I could give them my business card with the website. They said no. I asked them if I could just pray with them. They said no. It's a a moment of tragedy when you think about it. 
So close, but so far. You know, the cross is offensive. Do you know what's offensive about it? It calls into question what we think and who we are. It raises the possibility of judgment. It suggests a God willing to take life for sin. It makes us wonder, are we really as good as we think? When I die, will everything be okay or not? And it's offensive to consider that those answers might not be the way we want them to be. Hallelujah that God would bring us the Bible and the Word and Christ himself so that we would not go to our grave self-deceived about those things, but confident in where we will be because we have rested in the one whose life and death makes possible true hope. We will finish our service with a communion celebration that Dave will come up and lead in a moment. And as we go through this, for those who already know and have accepted Jesus as Savior, we'll enjoy this as a memorial of what Jesus did for us on that Easter so many years ago. But if you are not a Christian, if you've never confessed Christ in the way the Scriptures require, if you have come into this room with thoughts of earning your way to heaven or of thinking yourself able to go on your own merit, and now by the Word of God you have been convicted to think differently about these things, Don't leave this room without having taken the opportunity to make that decision, to make that confession. And don't do it for me and don't do it for anyone else. Come to know the truth now because no one knows when we will stand before the Lord. But we can all know what will happen when we are there. Let us not go into that moment self-deceived, thinking ourselves ready when we are not. But rather, let us go there with the confidence that Scripture allows because of our confession. While we're in this time of communion, I would ask that in your own heart of hearts, as you bow, as you think through this, as you pray through this in the silent moment of our communion service, that you would take an opportunity to confess, to believe, to accept and be saved. And if you do that, may I also ask you to come to me or someone in leadership before you leave, only so that we might be with you and know you in this way and serve you as God allows. Let's go to the Lord now and pray as we begin our service of communion. Heavenly Father, can we say thanks enough for the gospel? Can we find the words to express our appreciation for the love you've shown us in Christ's death? Would any of us send our son to die for another person? Could any of us imagine going there ourselves? And yet every Sunday, Easter, every year we remember the fact that you sent your son and he went there voluntarily, not for his own sake, but to save those who hated him, persecuted him, spat on him, beat him, and hung him on that cross. And for me as well, in all the sin that I have committed, Father, you have washed that clean by having placed it on Christ and put him to death in my place. Thank you, Father, for that day and for the opportunity you've made available in your Son. And thank you for the privilege that it is to preach your gospel, to speak this truth into a world that desperately needs to hear it. May we each, Father, have that same calling and burden on our hearts to be that light to a world that needs to know this truth. I pray, Father, that as we go into the service of communion, as we remember that sacrifice, that your heart, your your spirit would be stirring in the hearts of those here. And particularly, Father, in any heart that has yet to call upon you, to call upon the name of Jesus. I pray that that heart would be turned and would be opened and that fear would be set aside, that embarrassment would not factor into the decision, that the person 
would be subject to your will and to your spirit and to the truth, knowing that eternal things are on the line. I pray for that opportunity. And whether we see that result ourselves or whether it's saved for another audience on another day, I just pray, Father, that you would make that change happen. Let us all be cognizant, Father, of the way in which we live our lives so that the truth of what we say is not undermined by the life we choose to live. And let this church continue to speak truth boldly and with a concern and love for those you are working to save. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.